Hey everyone, and welcome back to the ninth and final episode of our series, Straight Out of Context. Here in season two of the FBC Young Adults Podcast, I'm John Lemons, the minister to young adults here at First Baptist Church in wonderful, beautiful Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. And I'm joined once again this week by my friend and my colleague, our ministry resident to young adults, Sam Maxwell. Well, Sam, this is our last episode of this series. But don't worry, we're going to have another short series after this one, and we'll have more details later on in this show about that one. But Sam, I feel like this has been a good series. Yeah, it's been a really good series. And a, a quick correction, you said sunny, beautiful Huntsville. It's a little dreary, which is the uh, the exception, not the rule. But Yeah, but by the time people listen to this, it'll be sunny and beautiful. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I think it's been a good series. I really enjoyed it. I think it's just fun to take the extra time to look at more than you know, a little bit outside of what we'd see in Sunday mornings or hear from the pulpit or just some of these other places. And I think there's a bit of like creative fun that takes place whenever you do these types of studies. And I think creativity is a godly thing. And so I think being creative and having fun with scripture is, you know, is God edifying and God honoring. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'm really a big fan of seeing it all come together and helping put it together for people. And I'm still learning, like I'm not an expert in this by any means. But for me, like when I realized and saw how the Bible fit together from different parts and different pieces, that's when it all just sort of clicked for me. So that's a big, you know, I hope a big part of my teaching and my ministry is helping it click for other people because it just, it just totally lit up the way that I, I read the Bible and the value that I took from it and things like that. And I think we'll talk about it a little bit today, but doing studies like this, especially when you start looking at the Gospels, um, really gives you just a larger, broader understanding of how these things weave together and they touch one another and they incorporate a lot of the same things um, that help you kind of get a bigger picture of what the world looks like where these authors were living. And so I think that helps you take a step into the Bible to participate in the story of the Bible. So much like you said, it, it just what a great opportunity it is to step in and explore the Bible in depth and, uh, you know, have it enrich us along the way. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, so for today, we're going to look at Mark chapter seven, verses 24 through 30. But on that note that Sam shared before we go there, you know, I just want to touch on, you know, as, as in regards to how we approach the Bible and study the Bible and things like that. First of all, I hope that this walkthrough, you know, for us, you know, looking at these various misunderstood scriptures, I hope it's been helpful for our listeners. But more than that, I hope it has helped them learn ways that they can begin to identify these misunderstandings misunderstandings as well uh, whenever a passage might be used out of context or that kind of thing. It's always a good idea when you want to use or reference a passage not to pull it out on its own. Grab three or four verses before or after it, and that will help you keep it in context. So for example, let's go back to our first passage that we did in this, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, we just, this is grad weekend as we're recording this. We had grad graduation Sunday this past Sunday. A lot of graduations are happening tomorrow and Saturday. So if you're like, can I use Jeremiah 29, 11 to encourage a graduate? Well, if you just look at the verses around it, you'll see verse 10, where it says when 70 years are completed for, for Babylon, which is a reference to them being in bondage for 70 years, then you can see the answer is no. Like this, yeah, I can't use this for a graduate. Does it, it, I would be pulling it out of what it's intended to mean. Yeah. So many times it really is just that easy. Just look at like three, four, five verses before or after, you know, just around the verse that you're looking at and you can very easily see if you're pulling it out of context or not. Perhaps had it said been in bondage for 12 or 13 years, then this might be a little more appropriate for high school graduation, but. Right, yeah. right. Um, so. But yeah, as we, uh, you know, kind of before we start getting a little more into the meat, I just also want to give a shout out to our listeners. Um, it's been enriching for me 
um, have, you know, being a member of this podcast to hear other people talk about how they've been experiencing the podcast and just the different ways they've been offered to think about these texts. So I know for me, if you've been listening and there's something that you've thought, well, shoot, I never really thought about this. Or I never really knew this. I would love if you wrote us an email. It could be short. It could be something to say, this was really impactful for me, or I never thought about it this way. Um, one, because I think that just talks about how God is working in all of our lives. And two, I think we should celebrate those things. So please send things to us individually, send things to the church. I'd love to hear from you to hear what maybe you've been going through as we've been going through this together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, you know, I'm hoping that for you, this gives you the tools and the resources to learn how to decipher this sort of thing on your own. You know, another thing to keep in mind with that is is when you're looking at passages of scripture, think about what's led to the compilation of the scriptures. They're not magic words. They didn't fall out of the sky. And a lot of times the way I try to explain it to people, we talked about this on a few series ago in, in a in our season one of our podcast, Holy Ghost Stories, you know, if you've ever had an experience um, that you would call mystical or just, you know, something that you don't have the words to explain, the writers of the Bible aren't much different than you. Like if you, if you could just say like, man, yeah, there was a time where I guess I, I experienced the presence of God. Well, guess what? Like, so did the writers of the Bible. You're talking about people who had these strange encounters that they, they identified as encounters with God and they shared these experiences with others. And as others began to experience similar things, they thought, you know, that sounds a lot like so-and-so's experience or uh, really you, you have the the church fathers. Obviously Moses is different than all of us. Like he had some very direct encounters with the Lord that you and I aren't going to have. Um, Abraham to some extent, but but the last portion of Abraham's life, he after after the whole sacrifice of Isaac or the almost sacrifice of Isaac, mm-hmm. like the God, God just stops communicating with him. Um, so, so these periods of these dry spells, if you read the Bible closely, like you'll see that a lot with a lot of these people in the Bible, a lot of the writers of the Bible, and that's okay. So, so in the same way that you you experience those sort of things in your life, they did as well. But then, what happened with that? With the people in the Bible, particularly the fathers of our faith and people like Moses and Abraham, they do have these sort of you know dynamic encounters that may be a little bit different than what you or I have. But for the most part, their experiences and the experiences of the people that came after them begin to form sort of a framework by which, you know, they can all kind of size up their own experiences. And so the fathers of the faith and the people in the Bible, their stories become sort of mile markers or guidestones for us, um, rulers, signposts, that sort of thing, whose stories we look at to help us make more sense of our story um, and then to center our own stories and experiences. So when I feel like I may have experienced something or when I feel like I'm learning something, I can read in the Bible and I can I can see, oh, like, whoa, David went through something like this too. Like here he is writing about it in the Psalms or Paul encouraged people who were going through this kind of thing too. I can read about it here in in his letters. And this is where the inspiration of scripture comes in. The writing of it is inspired for sure, but so is our recognition of its inspiration and and our recognition that that it has value and it has profit for our lives and for how we relate to God. Now we can go too far with that for sure. And we're going to talk about that today as an example of how to do that. But that is why it is important to interpret the Bible with the Bible, to share our experiences with one another, to be in community together so that other people can say, hey, I think you got that wrong because let's look over here. So like for a few weeks ago, just give you uh, another example of this. You know, we asked and hopefully answered for you, you know, why, why should we read the Bible at all? And I talked about a scholar who came and spoke to my class once in seminary and noted that the book of Revelation, if the original receivers of that book thought that it was for whatever was going to happen 2,000 years later, 
they wouldn't have cared and they wouldn't have read it and they wouldn't have preserved it. But we can flip that idea and we can ask if the stories in the Bible, if if they are written about people who came thousands of years before us, as we have said on the series, like, why should we care? You know, if, if it's not about us and not about our times, why give it any sort of amount of time at all or even a thought? And part of the answer to that is is what I just said. You know, it helps us kind of frame our own experiences and how we can relate to God. But the other, there's another part of that question that I didn't answer before and that I didn't answer earlier. And and here it is. Yes, these are stories about God encountering people thousands of years ago. And and yes, these are people who are no longer here. People that lived long before us and have long gone, uh, lived, died, turned to dust, like faded from memory. But here's the thing. God is still here and God is still alive and he is consistent and he's exhibited characteristics. And if you read the Bible through you will see that there are some harrowing points, but the conclusion that the book ultimately comes to, and hopefully that you come to through reading, reading it, is that God is good. So it's we have to remember that even though these are old stories, we're still reading about a living person and the person of God the Father, God the Son, God the, the Spirit. So yes, the stories are not about me. Yes, they are old, but the person that the stories are about is very much alive. And if you want to get to know him, well, guess what? Here's a treasure trove of stories about the first collection of people who got to know him and who have shared what they have learned and how to make sense of it. And you can use those as well as a foundation or a frame of reference, along with the present community of God's people, which is one of the gifts that God gives us, to begin to make sense of how you can get to know him too. So I hope that is sort of the value that this series has given you in your own walk and your own approach to scripture. Mm -hmm. It's certainly, it helps us to know God um, and I think at various points in my own life, there's the piece of me that wants to know more about God. But I think at least where I'm at right now, I very much see reading the Bible as having a conversation partner, right? You talked about these people just writing down their experiences and what they saw in their midst that God was doing. Um, somewhat, I forget who it was, but someone used the term conversation partners. And it could be with someone who's passed away. It's not necessarily a conversation the way that we're having. But they tell you about their lives and things that are going on. And you say, oh, yeah, you're a human. I totally get that. I understand what it means to be worried over situations. But even more than that, you know, it's the conversation partner about what does it mean to be a human? What is the human condition? What does it mean to be a human in relationship with other people? What does it mean to be a human who is seeking to be in relationship with God and know more about God? So it's not just a, a dusty old text about people in a long place, like a long place away, like you said, John, I think it is it is a conversation partner. It provides us with people to have long conversations with, to better concern, better consider ourselves, better consider our relationship with God, and better consider the way God wants us to live in relationship with one another. Yeah, absolutely, man. So are you ready to dive into Mark chapter 7? Uh, how about tomorrow? Just kidding. Yeah, nice. let's go. All right, well, this is a new addition to the Straight Out of Context Library. And what I mean by that is this. If you were with us two summers ago when we did this as a Bible study in the Life Center, we did not share about this passage. So mm -hmm. I've included it in this go-around uh, simply because it's come up recently on social media, and I wanted to address that. But I also want this to serve as somewhat of an example for us. So throughout the series, we've selected passages that you probably were quite familiar with if you grew up in church or if you at least grew up with a decent knowledge of Christianity. Not only were you probably familiar with them, you probably were familiar with how misused they were. Mm -hmm. So this is assuming that you've grown up in a moderate to conservative evangelical environment, which probably is the case for most people in Alabama 
or the Deep South, which is where I'm going to guess most of our listeners are. But it's not just conservatives or evangelicals that take verses out of context. So more liberal approaches to Christianity can do that as well. And while we need to address things that are in our end of the pool, or that are in our camp, so to speak. So if we're in a moderate to conservative evangelical environment, then we need to address those things more often than we do things outside of that camp. But, you know, it is good to be aware of things that are on the other end of the pool. Yeah. Um, uh, those things that are outside of our circles. And it is good to be aware of how to approach them or how to address them. So today's example is going to be an example of that. So let's go ahead and dive into it since we're talking about the other end of the pool here. Yeah, and pun intended. Yeah, and part of that, just real quick, I think sometimes, depending on where you are, you like to say, well, the other people do Bible interpretation bad. I don't think a poor Bible interpretation of understanding is limited to, you know, conservatives or liberals. We all do it. it. It occurs everywhere. Whether you hear it where you worship or you hear it from someone else who worships in another place, this is widespread. No one has the quarter oh, yeah, market on it. Somebody is listening to this and saying, these guys are terrible. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll find it everywhere, but you will find, I mean, there are going to be things you and I get wrong. Um, and I'm very open to that. I, I think the things that uh, we're sharing here, I will say like, we've studied those pretty hard, thought about those pretty hard. Like I'm pretty confident in the things we're sharing here, but I'm sure there are things that I haven't thought as hard about, or I'm just not as, you know, well read on or whatever that, that I would say I am, I am wrong about. And there are going to be things that I did read, um, and think a lot about that I'm going to be wrong about also. And, and so, you know, that is sort of a joke, but it's true as well. So all these things we have to kind of hold with a loose fist, so to speak. But uh, I am like almost 100% confident on where we're going with today's story <laughs> or today's passage. So uh, Mark chapter seven is where we are. It features a perhaps puzzling story from Jesus. Maybe you've read it before and you've been struck by it because there's some amazing details there. So we'll read it in a minute. But just to jog your memory, here are a few of the highlights. So there's a, a Greek woman that comes to Jesus asking for him to have mercy on her daughter. And he's, he appears to resist at first. He, he calls her a dog. And um, he, this all happens before her persistence seems to finally whittle Jesus down and he honors her request. So the story has led to a number of bizarre interpretations because it's sort of a bizarre story. Uh, and it gets no better in our day and age because it seems to intersect now with a number of cultural issues that we are seeing right here, right now in 2021, things like sexism or, or misogyny and uh, racism. So so both of these are coming into play in this passage in first century, you know, right outside of Palestine. Um, and they're still coming into play now in the 21st century in the Western hemisphere. So uh, like Sam and I said a few weeks ago, we as a people really haven't changed much over the years. We find ourselves doing the same old things generation after generation, time after time, century after century. So the fact that these issues seem to run so parallel to what we see now in our day, they can be helpful in trying to figure out how we can address the issues that we see around us. So again, that's another value that the scriptures bring to us and to you know, trying to interpret how to live life today. With all that said, um, we're gonna play the audio here from, from a video that was making the rounds on Twitter and TikTok a few weeks back, just so you can see how this verse can be inter interpreted too far to the extreme. So here it is. Did you know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus's response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. 
What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Well, that was certainly interesting, don't you think, John? Yeah, that's, um, man, there are so many things that are problematic there. Yeah. And this goes to the extreme, um, to, to, to accuse Jesus of racism and to say that he needed the woman to speak truth to power mm-hmm. to him. That's that's like the deep, 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 deep end of the pool. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the the furthest extreme I've ever heard someone take this passage before. Yeah. It's a little bit of a crazy take, and we'll explain why in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, most conservative interpretations of this are that it is a test of the woman's faith. You probably have heard that um, said to you time and again in, in Bible studies or whatever. People will say, well, Jesus was testing the woman's faith. The more liberal interpretations of this like to say, you know, this just shows Jesus's humanity. He learned something from the woman. That's usually the way people will take this is that Jesus needed the woman to to teach him something. And it just showed us shows us how human he is. So the liberal take usually empowers the woman. Um, so the conservatives say Jesus is testing the woman's faith. The liberal takes sort of empower the women, the woman more often. And I think they both are wrong. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. Let's focus more on the the latter interpretation here. Yeah. Um, most bad takes do not go so far to say that Jesus was a racist who had to repent. They don't <laughs> quite take it that far, but they do interpret it um, as a time in which Jesus needed to, quote unquote, learn a lesson. Yeah. So um, like as if he didn't know why he was here. Mm-hmm. So when it is interpreted that way, it makes the woman the hero of the story. And that's problematic because if you have a story that Jesus is in and Jesus is not the hero of the story, then... He's not Jesus. He's not your savior and he's not worth mm-hmm. your time. Can we take a sidestep and just focus on this word interpretation, right? And I think this is something maybe that's worth just a brief little aside is that whenever we approach scripture, whether you're on left or right, conservative, liberal, there is a certain set of glasses that you are wearing, right? And those glasses define who you are, where you grew up, the culture you belong to, the things that you believe. And you're wearing them whether yeah. you realize you're wearing them or not. Yeah, and that becomes the... Uh, Folks in school will call that your hermeneutic, the way that you view uh, the text. And so I think as we talk about interpretation, we have to be really careful about that to say, are we bringing any particular notions or understandings to the text? Do I have an agenda that I'm bringing to the text that I want the text to prove or disprove? Am I wanting the text to perform for me? Am I wanting the text to jump when I tell it to jump? So I know we, we use the word interpret the scripture as not so much what are we bringing to it and we want it to look a certain way. When we say interpret, we very much mean we want the scripture to tell us what it's trying to tell us um, in the way that it was intended. So just and go ahead. Yeah. Even the biblical writers acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, going back to we can relate to things that they can relate to. Paul even says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 13 at the very end. Yeah. He says, now we see through a glass darkly. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we're talking about lenses, but it's the same thing, same idea. He's basically just saying like, we can't quite make out what the full picture is. Mm-hmm. We're just incapable of doing that. But but there will come a time when we will know, even as we are fully known is what he says. So like yeah. th- there will come a time when it will be clear to us mm-hmm. and we will be able to see it clearly. But now we're just incapable of doing that. So we all do that. We all bring mm-hmm. these lenses to the table. 
with us, regardless of whether uh, we know we are or not. Mm-hmm. And and we do it, you know, we've yeah. done it probably in this series. Uh, I'd like to say that we haven't. Um, again, I'd like to say that we're not doing it here. Um, you know, someone, someone might disagree with us, but yeah. I, I, it just seems so clear to me. Mm-hmm. If Jesus needs to learn a lesson, if he needs to repent of his racism, as the audio clip indicated, then we all have made a huge mistake and we are we are wasting our time. Yes. So to me, this is just a really, really bad take. Yeah, and that, that's precisely my point is I, I think, and I'm not trying to bash the gentleman who did the video, but it would appear that he's bringing something to it that we wouldn't necessarily consider to be Orthodox Christian belief, right? He One of the things, especially as he says, oh, well, it just reminds us that Jesus is human, but Christian Orthodoxy holds both Jesus's humanity and his uh, deity together, right? So if if God is, ra- if Jesus is racist or Jesus is some other things, one, he's not our savior because he's not God, because God is not, God loves all these people and each one is marked with an indelible mark of God, right? So I, to go back to the bias, and I'm not, again, it's not that liberals specifically or conservatives specifically have a bias, but we just all have them. And that's why we go back to our couple of rules that we'll talk about here in a bit. And also the history of Christian understanding of who God is and as he's revealed in the Bible to us. Yeah. Um, Let's get back to our side of the table Mm -hmm. um, as we're, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, we, I said earlier, typically in conservative settings, you'll hear this explained as, you know, Jesus was just testing the woman's faith. I don't think that's right either. So let's look at why I think both of these are sort of off with regard to this story. And and hopefully, Sam, we can come to a side where uh, we can we can confidently say we feel like, mm-hmm. you know, we're not uh, we're not looking at this with any sort of bias, biases. Mm-hmm. So as we do every week, you know, we're going to look at, you know, the four rules to biblical interpretation that I have learned. Um, number one, how does it apply to the life of Jesus or the life of the writer? Number two, do you see only one translation or version of the story used? or verse used. Number three, what did it mean to the original hearers of the story? And number four, interpret the Bible with the Bible. So we're going to see number one and number three, uh, how it applies to Jesus and his followers or to the original hearers. We're going to see that at play as we walk through the passage and as we see what is happening here. The translation or version really isn't applicable in this case, simply because it's not really about what the verse is saying in particular. The bad interpretations are more really just about the story overall. Um, today is going to really be more of an exercise in number four, interpreting the Bible with the Bible more than any of the others. So with all that said, let's jump in. I'm going to read the passage from Mark chapter seven, verses 24 through 30. And I believe, I believe I'm reading from the NIV, but anyway, so verse 24, Matthew chapter seven, Jesus left that place. So first of all, I'm going to stop myself because whenever you see something like that and you're reading a passage, you just need to ask like, what, what place? Always ask this question because it, it it's telling you that a thought is continuing. So this is not a good place to start your biblical interpretation because it's obviously a continuation of something else. So always ask when you see something like this, what place? So earlier in the chapter, we're told that they're in Gennesaret, which is in Galilee. I think I said that right. But anyways, they're in Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry and where it was heavily populated with Jews. All right. So Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. This is on the outside of where most Jews would reside. Um, again, I'm not quoting the scripture at this point. Um, this is the outside of where most Jews would reside. It was on in the northwest on the coast of the Mediterranean. It would have been heavily Greek. And this is this is why your Bible has maps on it. This is a very important detail. So Jesus left the place where the Jews were and went to the place where the Greeks were. So back to the scripture. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it, 
yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. This woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. Okay, so this is, um, I'm going to pause again. This is a blend of everything that they are not. This is northwest of where Jesus and his disciples originally were. Um, It's the southwestern part of Syrian Phoenicia. So it'd be like if we went to Vancouver and encountered someone who was French Canadian. (laughs) So that'd be like northwest of where we are, but southwest of most people in Canada. That's basically kind of the, the scenario here. So back to the scripture. The woman begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. So to get this right or interpret it well, and we may not be right, but I do think this is a fair interpretation. We're going to have to do three things as as we look at this and try to interpret the Bible with the Bible. Number one is let's look for a similar passage or story and another part of the Bible that can give us a few more details. Number two, let's look at the surrounding passages to this story and see if they can give us even more details as to what's going on here. Number three, let's reflect on what we know about the character, mind, and heart of God from other passages in the Bible and use it to interpret this passage. So those are three approaches that we we are going to take to interpret the Bible with the Bible. So let's start with number one, looking for a similar passage or story in another part of the Bible that can give us a few more details. It just so happens, Sam, that we have this. So, uh, listener out there, if you don't know, we have four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are called the four Gospels. The the word gospel just means good news. John sort of has its own feel and flow. Mm -hmm. The point of it is the same, but there are different stories. There's different teachings of Jesus, that kind of thing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Some passages are almost word for word the same in, in the three of these. They're called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic is a word you don't hear much, so let's break it down. You've probably heard the word synopsis. Um, it's very similar. It just it just means like a, a general overview, overview. So the word synoptic is similar to symphony. You probably know that word. Sim means together, and phony or phone means sound. Uh, so the prefix sin in synoptic is similar to the prefix sim in symphony, and it just means with. And then you have optic, which you probably know if you've ever been to an eye doctor or an optometrist, it just means view. So the word synoptic means with view or to say it more naturally, with a similar view. Um, Again, think of like an orchestra where, you know, you'll have horns on one side and, you know, clarinets on the other side and they're going to be playing different things or or similar things, but they're going to complement one another and together they're going to make one sound that, you know, is pleasing to the ear, hopefully, uh, unless you go to a middle school band concert, which I've been to recently. Um, So the benefit of having three gospels that are unique and distinct, but also synoptic, also share a similar view, is that we can look in the other gospels, gospels for details that might not be included in the gospel that we are in. And that is the case with the story that we are in today. So before we move on, Sam, anything you want to add to any of that? Yeah, one of the, when I was learning about synoptic gospels, one of the things that really stuck with me, and this might help you think about why they're called such, is just that you can place Matthew, Mark, and Luke next to each other, and they look very similar. They almost look like mirrors of one another. Um, That isn't a a perfect explanation because they are not perfectly mirrored of one another. Um, So that's one thing. But the fact that they aren't perfectly mirrored of each other doesn't mean that we can't take them as credible it means that we are giving given extra perspectives or extra views from these different authors to see events often 
in different ways with different considerations. Um, so if you uh, are looking for a reading plan, there are a lot of them that will take you through the Synoptic Gospels and will often give you the, the same subject matter from different chapters and have you read them back to back to back. And I think it's just a really great way to read about the life and ministry of Jesus, seeing them through these different lenses. Yeah, a lot of Bible reading plans, some of them will, you will see um, called chronological reading plans, which is where instead of you know reading Matthew and then reading Mark and then reading Luke, it will blend them together and try to give you sort of a chronological timeline of Jesus's life and teachings. And those are a helpful way to read the scriptures. I don't, I don't necessarily prefer that um, because they are, you know, the stories that are included in the individual gospels are included for a reason. There's usually a larger point to what that author is trying to say, but to just get a whole kind of overview picture of what's going on, it is helpful to read the Bible in a chronological manner. So I would, mm -hmm. I would suggest doing that at some point in time when you, when you read the Bible through, um, it's helpful to do that when you're in the Old Testament as well, because you'll read passages in the Old Testament uh, and then like a corresponding Psalm. Um, so like there are times when David goes through something and you'll read about it in the historical books of the Old Testament, and then you'll read the Psalm that David wrote as a response to that, or that we think David wrote. So yeah. and what's amazing, um, it's, it's a really cool approach. And what's amazing to me is that, uh, Biblical scholars think that there was another writing at some point, gospel writings that just got lost. So I've always been a little fascinated, you know, what would that look like as it would bring in that little extra bit of detail to the rest of these, but it's beside yeah. the point. And there were other writings as well that people tried to pass off as gospels mm -hmm. that were not. Maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode, yeah. Sam, dropping little hints here. <laughs> um, so back to Mark chapter 7, uh, Matthew tells this story as well. He tells it in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. So I'm going to read through those, and I'm going to point out some of the details that are included there that will shine a bit more light on what is going on here for us. So I challenge you to see if you can spot some differences and similarities as well. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 15, leaving that place. Again, what place? Galilee. Um, so let's just equate that with North Alabama. Let's just say they were in North Alabama. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came out to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So again, there's a number of additional details that we have. Number one, Matthew calls the woman a Canaanite woman. I hope you noticed that. Mark calls her Syrophoenician. Matthew calls her Canaanite. It doesn't really matter. It's basically the same thing. Mark is mm -hmm. emphasizing that she's Greek. Syrophoenician sounds Greek. Um, he's emphasizing she's a Greek Gentile. Matthew is emphasizing that she is a Gentile descendant of the inhabitants of the land of Israel before Israel got there. That's who the Canaanites were. And I think Matthew is doing this very intentionally. We will see why. But for now, let's just note that there were no Canaanites at this time. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. So if we want to split hairs over this, we can. But the point is that she's a different ethnicity. Mm -hmm. But Matthew's use of the term Canaanite is so unusual. 
it should make us perk our ears up a little bit. And it is serving, in my opinion, as a bit of foreshadowing as to what is taking place. So we're going to come back to this. Just remember, Matthew calls her Canaanite. He does it for, he does it for a reason because there are no Canaanites at this time. Number two, Mark says that Jesus entered a house and the woman came to him and pleaded for mercy. And Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So that's where Mark starts this encounter. Matthew has that part two of this woman coming to Jesus, but it's later in his story and he doesn't include the detail of the house. So let's break this up a little bit. Number, number one, a lot of people make a big deal about Jesus referring to her as a dog here. I don't think that's actually a big deal. Uh, he does use a different term. They had they had two terms for dogs. One was for wild, mangy, scavenger dogs. The other was for, for more of what we would call a puppy or a pet dog. Um, he uses the pet dog analogy, but again, I don't I don't really think that's a big deal. Um, secondarily, Jesus. This is why I don't think it's a big deal. Jesus was always using analogies that people could relate to. Mm -hmm. He calls the fishermen disciples to come be fishers of men. He uses farming analogies to farmers. He uses parenting analogies to parents. He's doing this all the time. And, and the woman is a parent. Like he's acknowledging something that she would know intuitively that you don't, you, you have to take care of your kids first and you can't take something away from your kids to give it to your dog. Like she would know this. And I think that's the point of him using this term here. And in fact, this is what she is doing. She's trying to do what she can to take care of her daughter. Um, so number three, there does seem to be a bit of an implication that Jesus, Jesus is saying to her that she is less important um, it, it, that does seem to come across here. And, and really more than that, what he is saying is that he has a specific mission and it's to those he is with. And it's those he, it's those that he is trying to minister to like the disciples. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's number one, they are, uh, the reason why he's here because he's, he's about to start a mission with them. So it's really not, it's not that she's less important. It's that like, he's got, he's got something he's got to get done with them. However, Nobody but Jesus knows this at this time, but this is going to be a part of that. This encounter is a part of him, quote unquote, feeding the children. And we're going to see that in a few minutes as well. So Mark gives us a few details. Matthew, I'm sorry, gives us a few details ahead of Mark's encounter. Let's combine the details in the story and let's get a fuller picture here. So A, they're walking along the road. The woman is crying out is what Matthew tells us. The disciples hear her and come to Jesus. We know they hear her because they come to Jesus asking him to send her away. Matthew gives us all these details. We don't know if Jesus can hear the woman. I suspect he can. My suspicion is that he was waiting to see what the disciples' response to this will be. We'll see this in a few minutes when we zoom out from this passage. But it is important to note that Matthew says that the woman is crying out and that the disciples hear her and the disciples come to Jesus. Matthew then tells us that Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. A lot of people assume that he is saying this to the woman, but I think that's a mistake. You will, read, you will even read versions of the Bible that will say Jesus said to her. But in the Greek, the to her is not there. It just says Jesus said. Um, and the person that talked to him right before this were the disciples. So we're not directly told who he's talking to, but it is given in response to the disciples speak to, speaking to him, in my opinion. Um, and that's the safest assumption to make because they are the ones that just addressed him, that just spoke to him. And I think he's he's responding to that. And I think Jesus is waiting to see what the disciples will say back either to him or to the woman. 
C, Matthew then gives us the detail that the woman comes and kneels before Jesus. So this is where Mark picks up the story. Mark adds the detail that Jesus has entered a house, and then the woman comes. So by adding these details together here, Mark doesn't say where they are, but we assume they must be out on the road, and the woman's calling out. There's probably other people around, that sort of thing. Mark then says that Jesus entered a house, and they both say that the woman came to him at that point. It's at this point that we can assume Jesus is dialoguing with the woman. So not I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That was to the disciples. And then here at this point, when he's dialoguing with the woman, she asks for mercy. And he says, he says, basically, don't take the kid's bread and give it to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And he says, yeah, you're right. You have great faith. Again, I think this whole time, Jesus has been waiting for the disciples to respond. They don't respond at all. The woman does. And he is impressed with her level of understanding. And a lot of people, like I've, like I've said earlier, refer to this as a test of the woman's faith. This was not a test of the woman's faith. This was a test of the disciples, and they have failed. And just know, biblical interpreter at home, wherever you are, Jesus is going to use this encounter to, quote unquote, feed the children, um, the lost sheep like the disciples that he was sent to, but he's also going to use it to feed the, quote unquote, dogs as well. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of things I think that are really worth keeping in mind, um, and I think it's something I've said before, that paper, uh, writing utensils, people with writing skill was extremely, extremely limited. I can say that I'm guilty a long time ago of just approaching the Bible and saying, well, they're just a bunch of individual stories that are just, you know, threaded together. And that's how we get from the period to the capital of the next sentence. And I think we just have to really check ourselves and say, you know, the people who wrote these things wrote things that have survived for thousands of years. And not only that, but things that are still being poured over by people just to say, I don't think that these things are haphazardly thrown in there. To your point, John, you said you think it right. has something else to do, a, a bigger picture than just Jesus interacting with a woman. I think we have to realize that about a lot of these stories, is that it is often more about larger than what we see in an individual story, that it often is playing with another story or playing with a particular idea that the author wants you to recognize. And especially as we're talking about the book of Mark, where we see this story, one of the things over and over that you see repeating throughout the book of Mark is this idea that Jesus continues to do all of these miraculous events around his disciples, the ones that live three years with them, and they are so hopelessly out of it, and they just can't figure it out, right? They yeah. Other people will come in. You know, in Matthew, we look to chapter 8, and we see a centurion come in, and Jesus is like, no, I don't need to go to see your house servant. He's healed miles and miles and miles away. You don't have to worry about it. And still, you see events later where the it's like the disciples have a, a goldfish memory, you know, where they just forget these things. Um, yeah. And along with that, you know, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, Jesus's Messiahship of interacting with these people outside of the nation of Israel would be very much an affront to this idea of what the Jews had when they considered a Messiah, that the Messiah would ju be just for them, right? So it's yeah. it's Jesus yeah. hitting in a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And if we're interpreting the Bible with the Bible, we believe that Jesus is a God to more than just the Jews. He's, he came for the whole of the world. Um, so again, you know, interpret the Bible with the Bible, appreciate the Bible for what it is and the writers who wrote it and, you know, the great lengths they took to be very meticulous and intentional with every single thing that they wrote. Yeah. So much like you, I, I think that this is a story where there is something being said bigger than what we think is being said here. Yeah. And I think it's easy to sometimes to knock the disciples to say like, man, like they walked with Jesus every day. How did they miss it? Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you think about it, there's really two ways. There's two ways to not read a book. One is to hold it too far away mm -hmm. to where you can't see the words. The other is to hold it too close to where you can't. I mean, you, 
you can't read a book if it's too close as well. And 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 them being with Jesus every day, they were very close to Jesus, but in the same manner. Like you can miss things when you're that close to someone. Mm. Um, and and so there is a, a little bit of a sweet spot to be found. Oh, yeah. They had the benefit of walking with Jesus, but they they were so close to him that I think sometimes they they didn't get things because it just they, they just didn't have a good view of what else was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hold a book too close, you can't. There's no peripheral vision, right? So, um, yeah. I, I would say that's a poor analogy, but that that's one way to explain how they missed a lot of these sorts of things. Now, the other part of what you said is that there's a lot of intention intentionality into how the gospel writers um, wrote these things out. There's intentionality to that. And there's also intentionality to Jesus doing the things when he did them, mm-hmm. which we'll explore now. So the first thing we talked about is let's look at um, if there's another account of this and another gospel. We we just did that. We compared Matthew and Mark. So now let's look at the second thing we talked about. Um, let's look at the surrounding passages, both in Mark and both in, in, in Matthew, um, surrounding this account between Jesus and the woman. When we zoom out a bit and we look around, we see Jesus is now weeks away from the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. He's weeks away from leaving these 12 disciples in charge. And I talked about him having a mission for them, which is why he said, I was sent to the lost sheep. Like he's he's about to send them out. He's about to be gone. So remember here, he is, in my opinion, testing the disciples' faith. He's been sent to them, the lost sheep of Israel. And he is emphasizing this because he is about to send them to go into all the world to preach the good news. And it's my opinion that he is waiting for the disciples to respond the way that the woman does. He is waiting for them to say, yes, Lord, but, and they don't. So he's going to use this encounter to survey what they understand, which isn't much because they're holding the book too close, and he's going to prepare them. And the irony here is that they have now been with Jesus for about three years. And this woman who has been with him for about three minutes gets it more than his own disciples do. So yes, great is her faith. Like she is to be commended, but she's not the hero of the story. So again, let's zoom out a little bit more. We, we know that Jesus is, is weeks away from being crucified. A few passages before this, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he's on the Northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee when he does that. That's in Israel. And uh, in that story, if you were to go read it, they have five loaves of bread and two fish, and there's at least 5,000 people there. So they have essentially bread crumbs for all those people, basically. And they feed the people, and then there are 12 basketfuls left over, 12 in Israel. Keep this in mind. Then there's an account of him walking on water, and then the story after that is the Pharisees coming to Jesus and and asking about clean and unclean laws. And Jesus says, what makes a person unclean is not what they put into their bodies, but what comes out of their hearts. All right, so that's the gist of what's going on there, because to the Jewish person, everybody who's not a Jew is unclean, right? The very next story is the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman. All right. So where is this again? It's in Gentile territory. Who are the Gentiles? They are unclean people. They don't abide by the Jewish ritual laws. They eat bacon and barbecue and stuff, which is fine by me, but not by the, the Jews of the time. So Jesus has just taught the Pharisees who accused Jesus's disciples of being unclean while the disciples are standing there. And then immediately he takes them to a place where unclean people live, almost as if to say, do they get it? Like, are they, are they capturing this right now? And we have the story with the woman that comes right after all of this. And the answer very clearly is no, they don't get it. So let's recall again, a few of the details I asked you to remember. There were 12 basketfuls left over. Matthew emphasizes that he's, that, that the woman's a Canaanite. Uh, Jesus is testing the disciples' faith, not the woman's faith. She's a bit player in this test, and they fail the test. So they fail the test. What happens next? Where does Jesus take them from here? 
We have to look into Matthew and Mark both to pinpoint this. They both say that he goes back along the Sea of Galilee, but Mark includes the detail that he goes to the region of the Decapolis. Now, you might think like, oh, well, that sounds like a Greek term. It is. This is the southeastern portion of the sea where he fed the 5,000. So he was on the north or northwest where he fed the 5,000. Now he's on the southeastern portion of it. This is in, that was in the land of Galilee. This is in um, the, the sort of a Greek part of territory um, where the Decapolis is. Anytime you see Deca or Polis, it's a Greek term. He's on the Greek side of the Sea of Galilee now. So he was on the Jewish side before. He's on the Greek side now. And this was where the woman encountered him or, or where the woman encountered him. I'm sorry, it was in the far Northwest. So imagine uh, Galilee is in Northern Israel. I, I said, let's compare that to Northern Alabama. He takes the disciples up to like Memphis to teach them a lesson. So they, they go off into unclean territory. Now he's come back south, but he hasn't come back to North Alabama. He's kind of swung around southeast. So they're not back in the promised land. He's taken them to like Northwest Georgia. So this is sort of how these um, unclean lands were laid out around Israel. You've got the promised land, North Alabama, and then you've got where the secondary citizens live in Tennessee and Georgia. So uh, we'll, maybe we'll get an email about that. I don't know. Uh, so what happens now? He's fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory. There's 12 baskets left over. The disciples are accused of being unclean. Jesus says, what comes out of your heart makes you unclean, not where you eat or where you're from. Uh, all that has taken place. And so he takes the disciples into unclean territory up to Memphis. They have a chance to show that they get it up there. They don't. The woman does, though. So then he takes them into another unclean place, this time into Georgia, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do there? Ah, now we have the feeding of the 4,000. So now they have seven loaves of bread for 4,000 people. So again, basically breadcrumbs. And then he feeds them. And there are seven basketfuls left over. So in Jewish territory, there's 12 basketfuls left over in Greek territory, or again, remember the Ma Matthew calling the woman a Canaanite. That's where this comes into play. Um, in Greek territory or Canaanite territory, there's seven basketfuls left over. This is a subtle reference, a lot of scholars think, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, which says that this is the Lord speaking to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, in the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And it goes on to talk more, but that's where we want to zero in because you heard the term Canaanite in that, and you heard that there were seven nations that inhabited the land there. And again, there are seven basketfuls left over. So when they're in Jewish territory, the land of the 12 tribes, there are 12 basketfuls left over. Then they get into Greek territory and there are seven basketfuls left over. And there are seven nations that inhabited the land before that. John tells the story too, and um, he tells it, uh, he actually gives us the detail that the next day after the feeding of the 5,000, the people come to Jesus, the Jewish people come to Jesus, Jesus and ask for more bread. And this is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he's shown that he is who sustains for the Jewish people. He's who sustains for the children and that he is more than enough for the people of the 12 tribes, the people of Israel. But now Matthew and Mark are telling us he also goes into Gentile territory the one that's represented by the seven nations that inhabited the land before, and there are seven basketfuls left over. So basically, I'm the bread of life for the Gentiles too, is what he's saying here. And I've taken the children's bread and I've given it to the dogs, and they don't even have breadcrumbs. There was more than enough for the people of the world too. People like me and you, Sam, and people like those listening to this who don't have a Jewish heritage.
So now I hope all of the, all of this is starting to come together. So let's move to point three. What do we know about the character of God? There is another story that Jesus tells, and it's about workers, and it's in Matthew's gospel, and it's about four to five chapters after all of this. Again, within a few weeks of the accounts that we're looking at today, within a few weeks of Jesus's death. And in that story, a man hires a group of workers at the beginning of the day, and they agree to a day's wage. Then he hires more at 9 a.m., then he hires more at noon, a few more at 3 p.m., and a last batch of workers at 5 p.m. with one hour left in the workday. The employer then pays the last group first and he gives them a full day's wage. So the group that worked all day, that was the very first ones to get fired or hired, they expected to receive more. But when the employer gets to them, they receive a day's, day's wage as well. And they protest a little bit and the, the employer explains to them, I'm not being unfair to you. You agreed to a day's wage and I gave you a day's wage. It's not your concern uh, if I want to be generous with my money. It's, it's not. So this shines a bit more light for us onto the character of God, which we can then take back into what we know about the account surrounding the Canaanite woman and the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and all of that. This is interpreting the Bible with the Bible. Jesus says to the woman, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And then he goes into Greek land and he does that very thing as if to say, it's not right or it's not fair, but it's generous and I'm going to do it anyway. And the woman says, even the dogs get the crumbs. And Jesus acts as if to say, oh, we're not going to give them the crumbs. There will be plenty of bread for them and plenty left over as well. So this account with the woman then and the passages surrounding it are now a real life flesh and blood example of this parable that Jesus gives about the workers in the field who all receive the same generous wages of the landowner. And this we have heard in church before. God doesn't give us what, it, what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's what grace is. And this is a real life example with the woman and with these various feedings, along with the parable that Jesus gives a few chapters later. And all of that is speaking to this. It's speaking to the generous heart of God, the loving heart of God who bestows on us lavishly. So this is not a test of the woman's faith, though her faith is strong and commendable, but she's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. God is. And his incomprehensible love and grace are about to come exploding into the world here. Are you ready for that, disciples? This is a test for them, and it's now extended to us. They did not get it, and the people of Israel never got it either, the people of the Old Testament, which is why Jesus had to come in the first place. So Jesus comes, and he does what we couldn't and would not do. He's the bread of life. He supplies enough life to both the tribes of Israel and the nations of the world. And there's so much that there's also leftovers. So the question now for us is, do we get it? And how does this change us? Because the other message of the Bible is that we do need Jesus and we're not going to straighten this out on our own, but we should be driven to see and to understand that we will repeatedly fail, but Jesus won't fail us. So that's what's going on here. And that's how you approach this task of understanding the context around a passage. The example that we played earlier is one of the most egregious examples of a verse being completely misunderstood that I've ever heard. And I share this with you as an example that has grown out of my own study. Like we've shown you a sort of step-by-step -step process, I hope, by which to do this. And yes, Sam and I have gone to school and seminary and all that, but this isn't really from schooling, at least for me. It's honestly just from looking at the passage and the surrounding passages and, and the parallel or synoptic passages and looking at them over and over and over again and picking up the details that are there. And you can do that at home. And when you do that, these details just begin to pop out at you. There's a reason that these descriptions are given, like Canaanite woman. There's a reason that regions and cities are named. There's a reason why you have a map in the back of your Bible. It's so you can start to put these pieces together. And when you explore these details and you start connecting these dots, 
then you start weighing it against the character of God as it is revealed throughout all of Scripture, then man, it just pops out and you begin to understand it more about what is going on and what the story of the Bible is telling us. And I hope that we've helped you understand how to do that through this series, uh, how to do that in your own Bible study, not just today, but throughout the entire series that we've walked uh, with you together. And certainly some of the passages that we've gone over have probably been a little bit easier to understand or interpret within their context than others. But, you know, I know this one for Mark has been a little more difficult, but instead of getting frustrated and maybe just saying, well, it just is what it is, that there's nothing behind it, take a step back and say, with the limited time and resources and words that this person had, what might they be trying to tell us within it? Is there something more going on that maybe is a little bit harder to get to? What do I have to look a little bit further beyond to see? Because if you just take it by itself, then you could say, well, Jesus is just a racist and a big jerk. But if you look at it within the context that we just talked about, you could see, well, Jesus is one, trying to prepare the disciples for something amazing that was about to happen, but then also telling them and the readers that God's grace isn't limited to a particular type of insider people, but there's enough grace and enough love from God for all people, regardless of their insider or outsider, sta outsider sta status. And sure, that may have been a little bit more to get to, but I think that's far more consistent with the rest of the biblical witness. I think that is far more consistent with what we know about God. I think it's far more consistent with what the Bible tells us about who Jesus is. I think it's more consistent with our experiences with God um, and with the people of God. And, and quite frankly, I think it's a far more beautiful picture, right? It, it's sure, it's not simple, but it becomes a, a brilliant, beautiful tapestry that the author has very meticulously woven together to tell us the story of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think too, all of the Bible works together that way to get to that, that end point. Um, and I hope you can begin to see that through the work that we've done, not just today, like I said, but on this, on this whole series. And as we continue on, I mean, Sam and I are both here in Huntsville. If you're in Huntsville, we'd love for you to visit us at First Baptist Church. And, uh, you know, this is something I try to get across really in every Bible study that I lead and do. So hopefully that comes across, um, there as well. Um, but that's it. That's it, man. That is a, that is a bow on straight out of context as a series. Uh, for the second man, time. We're so, yeah, so grateful for everyone who has listened. Uh, we'll be back next week though. We're going to take a four week series. Um, and we're going to look at that starting next week to close out season two here. Sam's going to lead us through that. We hope that you join us there. Uh, Sam, anything you can tell us about what we're going to look at for the next four weeks? Um, yeah, I think it's just going to be a great opportunity for each of us to do some introspection, to think about what do we really believe, and is it God-honoring? Is it consistent with the biblical witness? Um, what does the Bible have to say about it, and what do we do with it? So I think we'll, we'll talk yeah. about a couple of things. I think it'll be really interesting. Uh, all I would say is just approach it with an open heart and open mind and say, well, all right, let's have a, let's be conversation partners and let's, let's talk about this. Awesome, man. We're looking forward to that. I uh, can't wait to, uh, to kick it off. But as we wrap up here, I want to thank you again for joining us, for listening along throughout this entire series. We want to also thank uh, Patrick Chester, as we've done every week for doing our sound and audio like he's done every week. We want to thank Ellen Christian for our series logo design. We'll thank Sam for our show notes. Be sure to check those out. We'll put some links in there. We'll put some deep dive into uh, other kinds of information, helpful information 
that we talked about in this episode. And also check us out online, fbchsv.org slash youngadults. Like, subscribe, rate, and review us, this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you know, subscribe and, and like uh, and rate on Spotify, Google, Amazon, wherever you're listening. And please be sure to please be sure to share this on your social media or through a text to a friend or, or whatever, if you found it helpful at all. So with all that said, speaking for myself and for Sam, we are so glad to have joined you throughout this uh, nine week period. And we're looking forward to next week as well. Until then, you guys take care. We'll see you next time. said peace the first week and like um Patrick threw it in at the end huh yeah for real dude my 90s always show